All right, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. It's on page 904 if you have one of the Bibles from the welcome table. Um, we, are, we are one week away. Next week, we're finishing the, the Gospel of Mark. Pretty crazy to think about it, right? Um, I'm excited about that. I'm, I'm looking forward to um, not moving on from the Gospel, but moving deeper into it as we go into the book of Ephesians from here and see how we live this out as the church of God. Um, but today we're going to look at Mark chapter 15. We're going to look at verses 1 through 39. It's a, it's a pretty hefty chunk of scripture, but I want us to, to see and experience it as best as we possibly can what Jesus endured in his trial with Pilate and in his crucifixion. This is both the worst and the best moment in human history right here. It's worse because it shows the extent of humanity's sin, and it's the best because it shows the extent of God's love for sinful humanity. Today, we're going to get the, to the very heart of the gospel, not just Mark's gospel, but the good news that we've all been commissioned to share as uh, believers with the world. Now, obviously, the resurrection is also a vital part of the good news. Paul talks about that. Without the resurrection, we have no hope, right? And we'll finish Mark's gospel next week with the resurrection of Jesus. But there's no resurrection of Jesus if there's no death of Jesus. And there's no death of Jesus if there's no crucifixion of Jesus. We're going we're to see. He doesn't die until he gets to the cross. And that's on purpose. Okay? And so it's the crucifixion of Jesus that changes how sinful humanity can relate to God who alone is holy. And if we want to be reconciled to God, we must come to the cross of Jesus Christ and see him there in our place through his description of Jesus's trial before Pilate and the resulting crucifixion. Mark's going to prove that Jesus is indeed the divine son of God and the one true king who willingly became the sacrificial substitute for his rebellious people in order to pay for their guilt and to set them free to release them from the imprisonment of uh, of sin. And so I want to pray specifically for our time in this passage, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true, that it's right, that it's good. We thank you that even in the, the picture of the most horrifying thing a person can experience, we see the most glorifying thing in your exaltation of Christ on the cross and reconciliation of us to yourself. We thank you, God, that we have this word to rely on, to give us hope, to bring us back to the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done, and to help us live in that hope, even as we uh, take an honest look at the things that are going on in the world around us. So would you give us eyes this morning to see the son of God lifted up and to see the beauty of the gospel, the hope of the gospel in the horror of the cross. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. All right. We're just going to jump right in and try to try to as best we can immerse ourselves in, in what's happening here and, and, and see this play out. So Mark chapter 15, we're going to start in verse one. As soon as it was morning, having held a meeting with the elders, scribes, and the whole Sanhedrin, the chief priests tied Jesus up 
They led him away and handed him over to Pilate. So Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, you say so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. Pilate questioned him again, aren't you going to answer? Look how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus still did not answer. And so Pilate was amazed. Now it's daybreak on Friday morning. Just remember, like just, just at the beginning of the week is when Jesus came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, right? And people shouted, Hosanna. And now it's Friday morning, right at sunrise. Pilate's the Roman governor of Judea, that whole area. And he's in Jerusalem during the Passover to oversee the influx of Jewish pilgrims who've come to celebrate the Passover inside the city. And, he, and his primary role is to make sure that the peace is kept. Roman officials like to get their, their, their business matters out of the way in the early in the morning so that they can pursue more leisurely activities for the rest of the day. Um, and so uh, the, knowing that and also wanting Jesus to be executed before sundown, which is the beginning of the Sabbath, the religious leaders, they get together, they make sure that their stories are straight and, and they uh, so that they can take him to and Jesus and, and put him on trial before Pilate. Now they need to make sure that their accusations against Jesus are, are sound politically driven before Pilate rather than religiously driven. Pilate doesn't care about the fact that, that uh, there's a claim that Jesus is the Messiah. He doesn't care about that. What he does care about though is that this Messiah claims to be king and that's a direct threat against Caesar himself and now it becomes a political concern. And so he asked Jesus if it's true. Uh, are you the king of the Jews, he says? And Jesus answers, you say so. Don't you love how Jesus just knows what to say? It's not a direct answer. It's also not a denial. Jesus is, in essence, telling Pilate, you have said it, and you would be wise to consider what you've said. That's the sense here. Even in that moment, Jesus is offering this truth to Pilate. But unsatisfied with Jesus's answer, Pilate points to all these other accusations against Jesus that the chief priests have made. Luke's gospel tells us some of these uh, other accusations. They, they said that Jesus was misleading the nation of Israel and that he's opposing the payment of taxes to Caesar and along with uh, claiming to be the Messiah, which was a, a king, right? Now, according to Roman law, silence implied consent to all the charges against the accused. This is why uh, Pilate is, is urging Jesus to say something. Don't you understand all of these accusations? If you keep your mouth shut, you're agreeing that you're guilty. But Pilate knows something here. He, he senses something. This, is, this does not look like a guilty man. And so he's pleading with him, defend yourself. But Jesus remains silent. And Pilate's amazed at this. And we too ought to be amazed as we read this and we see our Savior fulfilling yet again another scripture. Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. Jesus is led everywhere in this, in this passage. Everywhere. He's just led but we need to understand that he goes willingly and ultimately he's the one that's in control. He is leading. 
And this sense of wonder that we have here of our Savior fulfilling this scripture, it's going to turn to to indignation, or at least it should, as we read what happens next. Look at verse 6. At the festival, Pilate used to release for the people a prisoner whom they requested. There was one named Barabbas who was in prison with rebels who had committed murder during the rebellion. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do for them what was his custom. Pilate answered them, do you want me to release the king of the Jews for you? For he knew it was because of envy that the chief priest had handed him over. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he would release Barabbas to them instead. Pilate asked them again, then what do you want me to do with the one you call the king of the Jews? Again, they shouted, crucify him. Pilate said to them, why? What has he done wrong? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. And after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. The injustice that takes place here is revolting. This is a perfectly innocent man who is being driven by a maddened crowd at the hands of sinister religious leaders and a cowardly political figure. This is ridiculous. This is not okay. We shouldn't just read this and, and, and go, well, this is what happened, right? We need to understand what the, the injustice that's taking place here. The self-preservation of a political leader, the envy of the religious leaders and the persuadability of a crowd. It's like they had Facebook back then. They all lead to, to an innocent man being condemned to death while a guilty man goes free. But it's through this display of injustice that the beauty of the gospel shines forth. Pilate is the only one in the whole city, just happens to be there, remember, quote unquote. He's the only one who has the authority to release a prisoner or sentence one to death. And during the festival, he has this custom of releasing a prisoner of the people's choosing. The language in verse six gives the sense of the people interceding on behalf of the prisoner for his release. Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had rebelled against Rome and who committed murder in the process. Luke's gospel notes that Barabbas himself joined them in committing those acts. Now there's a good chance that the people um, saw him as a hero of the commoners and that they were there actually to, to, to ask Pilate to release Barabbas. They already knew this custom. They were familiar with it and that they already had it in mind to come and ask Pilate to release Barabbas. At least that's what verse eight alludes to. The people came to Pilate and asked him. In fact, the language there is that they, they demanded him to release Barabbas. And so they come, they come and ask for Barabbas' release, but Pilate, he gives them a second option here. One they didn't, they didn't know about initially. He knows that the chief priests handed Jesus over because they were envious of Jesus's authority and popularity with the crowds. And so Pilate gives the, the crowds a chance to speak up for Jesus. Now the chief priests, if you're the chief priest here, you, you got to remember from chapter three, you've been plotting to kill Jesus and you're so close, right? You've worked so hard plotting with the Herodians and, and the rest of the, 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 the religious elders and, and scribes and all of these, these, 
religious leaders and, and, and you've, you've already condemned him yourself and you've made your case before Pilate and, and, and now it's all about to unravel if Pilate can convince the crowd that Jesus is innocent and he's the one that needs to be released. And so what do you do as the religious leaders? You've already pleaded to Pilate. You have to turn to the crowd, right? Or maybe we should say turn on the crowd. So they incite the crowd. They stir them up. They don't give the crowd time to consider Pilate's question or his suggestion to let Jesus go free. And they, they get the crowd worked up over Barabbas so that they can demand his release instead. Remember why you came, crowd. Barabbas is your guy. He's the one we want. Forget about Jesus. And so they demand his release. And in verse 12, Pilate asks the crowd, then what do you want me to do with the one who you call the king of the Jews? You notice how he keeps calling him that? It's not clear whether he's trying to convince them to ask for Jesus's release instead of Barabbas or if he's actually offering to release Jesus along with Barabbas. But what is clear is that Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent. He's, he's on to the religious leaders here and, and knows their, their, their ploy. And he doesn't want to be responsible for putting Jesus to death. His interchange with the crowd gets out of hand quickly as he tries to convince them of Jesus's innocence and, and they keep shouting for his cru crucifixion. It just escalates, right? Why? What have they done? Or what has he done? Crucify him. That's all they, that's all they yell. They want the king of the Jews to be put to death for high treason against Rome. Now, Pilate is the most powerful person in Jerusalem in that moment. And in an act of sheer cowardice, the most powerful man in Jerusalem who was there to keep the peace does so by giving in to the crowd and giving them what they want so that they won't report him to Caesar. He releases a known insurrectionist and murderer, and he condemns the Prince of Peace to death. And now the physical torture truly begins. Jesus has been mocked and beaten, spit on up to this point. But Pilate has Jesus flogged. And because there's kids in the room, we're not going to go into great detail on that. But I will say this. The whip has several strands of leather that are secured with fragments of bone and metal. Think about how you, you rake hard soil in a garden. And the more you do that, the farther in the, the, the teeth of the rake go. This is what's happening here. It was so gruesome that they wouldn't allow this to be done on women. And the Jews themselves, in, in some sort of act of mercy, limited the number of blows to 40. That's merciful. 40. But the Romans had no such limit. Most people didn't make it to the crucifixion because the flogging alone was enough to kill them. But Jesus endured it. Why? This is not where he's supposed to die. This is not the way it's, it's, uh, it's planned. He's going to be flogged here, but he's not going to die here because he has to die where? On the cross. That's where his death needed to come. And that's because 
the Father had planned it that way before the foundations of the world were laid. And this is where the beauty of the gospel shines through. Again, this scene with Barabbas is the epitome of the gospel's most central theme, Christ's substitution of himself on behalf of sinners. The name Barabbas means son of the father, bar, son, Abbas, Abba, father. And what, in, in what seems like a twist of irony, this, this son of the father who was guilty and condemned to death was set free because the true son of the father, Jesus Christ, took his place. But this is not irony. This is the good news of the gospel. Even though we were guilty in sin and rebellion against God and condemned to death because of it, God gave his one and only son to die in our place as a substitutionary sacrifice so that we could be called sons and daughters of God, Christ in my place. This is the gospel. This is the central theme of the gospel. This is what every true Christian must believe. We must confess that we are like Barabbas, condemned. But Christ made intercession for us and secured our release from the prison of sin and death by taking our guilt and shame upon himself and dying in our place on the cross. But he's not on the cross yet in our passage. He's taken the guilt and now he's going to take the shame. Look at verse 16. The soldiers led him away into the palace, that is the governor's residence, and they called the whole company together. They dressed him in a purple robe twisted it together or twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on him and they began to salute him hail king of the jews they were hitting him on the head with a stick and spitting on him getting down on their knees they were paying him homage after they had mocked him they stripped him of the purple robe and they put his clothes on him three times already in this passage jesus has been called the king of the jews mark is doing something here for, for the reader. And now the Roman soldiers treat him like one. He's led away to a palace by a whole company of soldiers. That's a kingly picture. They dress him in a purple robe, which is the color of royalty. They put a crown on him. They begin to salute him as they would, uh, hailing him as they would Caesar himself. And they get down on their knees and they pay homage to him. And yet it's another twist of irony because the details here give way to their mockery, right? They're mocking the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who commands legions of angel armies and is robed in majesty, the one to whom every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and everything in them will say blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever, the one who, to whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the man, this is the God that they're mocking. The one who is crowned with many crowns in Revelation 19 is crowned here with the curse of Genesis 3. Do you remember when God cursed the ground? What did he say it would produce? Thorns. He cursed the ground and he made it produce thorns and thistles because of Adam's sin. Now the one who cursed the ground is bearing that curse 
of sin on his head as the new Adam who will usher in a new creation through his faithful obedience to the Father. But first, first, he must be ushered to the cross. Look at the second half of verse 20. They led him out to crucify him. They forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus's cross. He was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. They brought Jesus to the palace called, or to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Then they crucified him and divided his clothes, casting lots for them to, to decide what each would get. Now it was nine in the morning and they crucified him. The inscription of the charge written against him was the king of the Jews. And they crucified two criminals with him, one on his right and one on his left. It was both Jewish and Roman custom to carry out executions outside the city walls of Jerusalem. It was also customary for the condemned criminal to carry his own cross out to the place where he would be crucified. Most likely it's not the whole, you know, up and down cross, but the, but the cross bar, the horizontal part. He would strap it to his shoulders and, and have him carry it across his back. What's his back look like right now? This beam weighed 30 to 40 pounds. He's already weakened from the flogging. How's he going to carry this thing? He's not. He's not going to be able to. And so they press into service. A man named Simon from Cyrene to carry it for him. He's the father of Alexander and Rufus. It's, it's believed that Alexander and Rufus were members of the Christian church in Rome to which Mark wrote. And so that's why he mentions them here in relation to Simon. As, if so, that would be a very personal connection then uh, to Christ's suffering here for this church, even as they're experiencing the suffering of Rome 20 to 30 years later as they're being persecuted for their faith. The imagery here echoes Jesus's call to discipleship after he predicted his death the first time in chapter eight. If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Simon is forced to do so here. But if we are to follow Christ, we must willingly do so. Golgotha is an Aramaic word that Mark translates for his Greek-speaking readers. It means place of the skull, most likely not because it was shaped like a skull, although that, that, that is a theory, but, but most likely because skulls were common here. Why? Because it's a place of death. This is where Jesus is going to die. That's why he's going there. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh as a painkiller, but Jesus refused it. Because in the garden, he determined to do the Father's will and not his own. He determined to drink to the dregs, to the fullness, the cup God had prepared for him, the cup of wrath. And he'll do so without numbing his senses. Psalm 22, 16 through 18 says, For dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People look and stare at me. They divided my garments among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. 
clothing. Mark describes Jesus's fulfillment of this psalm in an almost matter-of-fact way. Verse 24, then they crucified him and they divided his clothes, casting lots for them to decide what each would get. Now, we know Mark enough by now to know he's not being calloused here, right? Nor is he downplaying the horror of what's happening. Uh, his audience is Roman. They know what crucifixion is. What he's doing is he's drawing the reader's attention to something that's happening that's not as obvious, but just as important. The inscription of the charge against Jesus was written and secured on the cross above his head. And it said this, the king of the Jews. This did three things. It allowed Pilate to justify his actions against Jesus because it made Jesus look like a political rebel. It allowed Pilate to provoke the chief priests who never acknowledged Jesus as their king. And it warned everyone passing by of the consequences of rebellion against Rome. It's win-win-win for Pilate. But it does a fourth thing for us. It allows us to see something Mark alludes to in verse 27. He says, they crucified two criminals with him, one on his right and one on his left. You remember back in chapter 10, when after Jesus predicts his suffering and death for the third time, he actually predicts his flogging in that one. He's very specific in that one. Talks about how the, the, the religious leaders will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles who will beat him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. After that, James and John come up. What do they do? Lord, allow us to sit at your right and your left when you come into your glory. Remember what Jesus answered? To sit at my right or my left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. They crucified two criminals along with him, one on his right and one on his left. The hour of glory for our king has come. But the throne that God has prepared for him is not one in a palace. It's a weapon of execution. It's a cross. And it's on this cross that the king will give his life in order to establish an everlasting kingdom for all who believe in him, where they will glorify him forever. But not all will glorify him. And that's evident in the next verses. Look at verse 29. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads, saying, Ha! The one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself by coming down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests and the scribes were mocking him among themselves and saying, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him taunted him. Jesus is blasphemed by all who pass by. He's slandered. And he's mocked by the chief priests and the scribes and and, and he's, he's taunted even by the criminals that are hanging on the cross. Now, in Luke's account, we know that one of those criminals repents 
changes his mind, believes that Jesus is who he says he is. But Mark's point here is that Jesus is completely shamed by all who surround him. The ridicule is the same from everyone. They, want, they all want him to prove his power by coming down off the cross. If they're going to believe him, he, he must save himself. If he's really the Messiah that he says to be, the Messiah who's supposed to set up an earthly kingdom that never ends, then there's no way he should die. And it's the final temptation from the enemy. This is what Jesus faced in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry. And it's what he faced in the Garden of Gethsemane at the end of it. The temptation to forsake his mission and avoid the cross. And now, one last time, he's bombarded with taunts to prove his identity by saving himself. Psalm 22, 7 and 8. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and they shake their heads. He relies on the Lord. Let him save him. Let the Lord rescue him since he takes pleasure in him. Isaiah 53, 10 through 12. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days and by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion and he will receive the mightiest spoil because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. The son of man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many Christ cannot come down. Christ will not come down. He will receive the severe crushing as a guilt offering to accomplish the Lord's pleasure in justifying many. This is the heart of the gospel. Look at verse 33. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, see, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, fixed it on a stick, offered him a drink and said, let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. Three hours of darkness in the middle of the day. How does that happen? Some have tried to claim that it's a solar eclipse, but that only happens on a new moon. And Passover is celebrated on the full moon. And solar eclipses don't last that long, usually. This isn't a natural phenomenon. This is, this is a supernatural event here. It echoes the original Passover when God covered the land in darkness for three days before he killed every firstborn son in Egypt and passed over those who had the lamb's blood over their door. It also echoes the account, the account of, of creation in Genesis 1 when the earth was formless and empty and darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. The darkness at the cross was both a sign of God's lament and judgment upon humanity for crucifying his son and 
a foreshadowing of the new Passover in which God would provide life for all who are covered in his son's atoning blood through faith and are now made new creations in him. Three o'clock was when the Jews offered a daily sacrifice in the temple. It's also when Jesus cried out the most heart-wrenching words in all of scripture. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? It's in that moment. This is, this is the moment that Jesus agonized over in the garden. This is the thing that he prayed. If there be any other way, let that be the way. And yet not my will, but yours be done. In that moment, the son experienced the full weight the crushing weight. It pleased the Lord to crush him severely. He experienced the full weight of the father's wrath against sin. Tim Keller says, Jesus was experiencing our judgment day. The degree of agony that Christ experienced shows the magnitude of God's holiness and the magnitude of our sin. We need to understand that even the, very, the smallest discrepancy the tiniest sin, that, that little white lie, the most minute thing that we can call sin is unholy enough to elicit this righteous wrath from a holy God. Jesus wasn't confused about what was happening, though. He knew full well what was going on. This is very real agony that he's feeling. And in this agony, he cried out the words of Psalm 22. You notice how that psalm's shown up a lot in this passage. I encourage you to read it this week. But he cried out the words of Psalm 22 as a prayer that expressed both the anguish that he felt in that, in that moment and related to himself, the, the, the righteous man who suffers in Psalm 22, and, but also related the confidence that he had that the father heard his cry. Psalm 22 starts with, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? But it moves from despair to hope. It says, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you in the assembly. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. All you descendants of Israel, revere him. For he has not despised or abhorred the torment of the oppressed. He did not hide his face from him, but listened when he cried to him for help. Some of those standing there think he's calling for Elijah, who was thought to be the helper of those who were in trouble and the rescuer of the righteous. The drink they offer Jesus isn't to ease his pain, but to revive him is different than the drink they offered earlier, the, the painkiller. This one is actually to, to restore his senses, to, to revive him long enough so that they can wait and see if Elijah comes. They're inducing more torture and pain with this drink. And they want to see if Elijah will actually come and take Jesus down off the cross. If that happened, Jesus would be vindicated as righteous in their minds. But we need to understand this. Jesus doesn't need to be vindicated by Elijah. He'll be vindicated by the Father when he raises him from the dead. It's Jesus' death on the cross that vindicates Elijah as a righteous man before God. 
It's Jesus's death on the cross that vindicates us as righteous before God. Jesus needs no rescue. He is the rescuer. As believers, we have cried out to Christ for help, and he has taken us off of the cross of God's wrath and has endured it in our place. And his death enables God to be both just in his condemnation of sin and the justifier of sinners. That's Romans 3. Now we bear the cross of discipleship instead. We follow Christ in his sufferings, knowing that our sufferings are not a punishment from God for our sin, but a tool of, of, of God's grace that transforms us and conforms us into the image of his son. So that we may also be glorified as righteous co-heirs with Christ in his eternal kingdom. This is what Christ accomplished for us on the cross. And in what seems like another twist of irony, it's a Roman centurion who gets this idea and the first glimpse of it. Look at verse 37. Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. And then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Now, we're familiar by now with what we call the Markin sandwich, where he takes two stories and opens one up and sticks another one in between it so that they both have fuller meaning. This is probably one of the shortest Markin sandwiches in the gospel here, these three verses. The tearing of the temple curtain is sandwiched between these two phrases, Jesus breathed his last. Crucifixion usually led to the death or, or to death by suffocation because of the way the, uh, the person hung on the cross. Their bodies would gradually grow weaker and weaker and they can't lift themselves up to take a breath. It would be unusual for someone so close to death to have any strength left to breathe, let alone utter a word. But what does Mark say Jesus did? He let out a loud cry. And what was that cry? John records it for us in his gospel. It is finished. With his last breath, Jesus let out a loud cry, not of defeat, but of victory. And when he breathed his last, the curtain of the temple was torn into from top to bottom. Note that it's not bottom to top. This is an act of God. That curtain was massive and super thick. No man could tear that thing. And in doing it, God gave his approval to his son's sacrifice and rendered the already condemned temple and its sacrifices obsolete. Now access to God is provided not just for the high priest once a year on the day of atonement, but for all people anytime through the atoning blood of Jesus. He gave us a new way around the curtain, Hebrews tells us, in the presence of God. The account ends with the confession of the centurion who's standing there taking it all in. This, this guy is a, he, he's, he's, he's experienced. He's seen crucifixions, hundreds. He knows a criminal when he sees one. 
He knows what's normal and what's not normal in the process of crucifixion. Jesus is not normal to him. He doesn't see a criminal. Jesus' death was different than all the others. And when the centurion saw that the way Jesus died, that's what it means to breathe your last. When he saw the way Jesus died, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Now, we just went from the smallest Mark and Sandwich to the biggest right here in verse 39. In the whole of Mark's gospel, go all the way back to Mark chapter 1, verse 1. How does the gospel begin? Mark says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Throughout the whole gospel, Mark and the Roman centurion are the only two human beings to positively confess Jesus as the Son of God. But the centurion's confession wasn't based on the miracles that Christ performed or the teachings that Jesus taught. It was a confession that came after he witnessed the suffering and the death of Christ on the cross. And that's Mark's whole point. The gospel of Jesus Christ is most fully and clearly shown to us through his crucifixion. And in his description of the centurion's response, Mark is driving home the point that he made at the very beginning. Jesus is in fact, the divine son of God. And this was all part of God's plan for the salvation of his people. This is God's doing. This is God's doing. Psalm 22, 27 through 31. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall proclaim, they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. It is finished. Jesus is indeed the Son of God and the one true King who willingly became the sacrificial substitute for his rebellious people in order to pay for their guilt and release them from imprisonment to sin and death. He has done it. He has done it. So that begs the question, do you see what the centurion sees? Do you see what Mark sees? Do you see what everybody else missed? If you want to be reconciled to God, you must Come to the cross of Jesus Christ and see him there in your place. You must see and believe the horrifying effects of your own sin. And you must see the beauty of what God has done to reconcile you to himself and believe. To try to come to him any other way is to dismiss the necessity of the cross and to make a mockery of Jesus. You cannot attempt to take him down. Instead, you must call on him to rescue you. And the Bible promises that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you done that? As a church, this is the Christ that we confess. 
This is the central theme of our gospel. He is the one who saves. That's what his name means. He's the son of God who willingly laid down his life for us. And we know that what he did, that he, we know that he didn't remain on the cross, right? We know that, that he didn't remain in the grave. We know that he rose from the dead and he's now seated on his heavenly throne at the right hand of the father. And we know that one day he will return as the conquering king once and for all. The horror and the beauty of the cross ought to help us understand the sufferings that we face in this peculiar and particular time in life. If we are to carry out this mission to bring glory to Jesus Christ by helping each other connect the realities of, our, of the gospel to the realities of our lives, then this gospel message has to apply to coronavirus, to political strife, to division in our country, to confusion and, and questions on how we are to respond as a church in love to our neighbors and to our leaders, all of these things. We don't have to deny the reality of those things, but we mustn't deny the reality of the hope that we have in Jesus because he truly is the son of God. We have a message of hope to live by and share with those who remain in sin. Our hope doesn't rest. I, I, I hope we know this. Our hope doesn't rest in who the next president will be. Our hope doesn't rest in who controls the Senate come January or June, depending on what happens between now and then. Our hope doesn't rest in finding an, an effective vaccine for COVID or in rebuilding the economy. Our hope doesn't even rest in, in establishing a, a physical church here in Minunk. Our hope rests in the Son of God and the King of Kings the king who rules our hearts, who's reconciled us to God and removed our strife and rescued us from ourselves. Our hope rests in his ability to rescue and reconcile others. And so we proclaim Christ crucified. It's foolishness to the world. But this is the hope that we have. And as we proclaim it, we pray that God in his time, in his way, in his strength, in his power, by his spirit, that he opens up the eyes of the blind and enables them to see and confess what the centurion saw and confessed. This indeed, this truly is the son of God. Christ crucified is what we proclaim when we take the Lord's Supper together. Paul says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's a united proclamation of his body. It's something that we continue to remind ourselves in of the hope that we have. We drink the cup and we eat the bread as a reminder again of the wickedness of our sin 
and the glorious goodness of God in Christ. And how those two things met at the cross of Jesus. And so we're going to close together by doing that this morning. If you can't proclaim faith, proclaim death, if you can't proclaim the death of Christ in faith, there's no reason for you to take the bread and the cup. Instead, for you, for you this morning, I, I would ask that you consider the cross. You consider all the things that we just talked about here. Surely this can't be a coincidence. Think about all the things that Jesus has fulfilled. Examine God's word for yourself. Examine your heart. Give both an honest reading. And consider whether or not you have need for Jesus. And my prayer is that you would see Christ and believe that today would be the day that you turn from your sins and you trust in him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat the bread together. The same way he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink the cup together in proclamation of our Lord's death. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you came not to do your will, but the Father's will. We thank you that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We thank you that you make us a new creation through the washing and the renewal and the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, who gives us the eyes to see and believe. We thank you that we don't have to rescue ourselves because we can't we thank you that your death is sufficient to cover all of our sin past present and future and so lord we pray that we would hold fast to the hope that we have in christ knowing that our savior who died now lives ruling and reigning in all eternity and we will live with him as co-heirs of the kingdom. We thank you for this gospel. We pray that you would help us to take it with us and share it with others so that they too may have hope in the one who is the son of God. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.